This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Last week, we began the discussion of the seven factors of awakening. And in Pali, the term for these factors is bojanga. And they're called factors of awakening because they lead the mind or incline the mind, guide the mind towards nibbana, towards freedom. These factors are functions or activities of the mind, of our own minds. They're not something outside of ourselves. And each one of them has a unique contribution to make in the process of awakening, in the process of freeing ourselves. And they form a progression. Each one leads to the one that follows. Mindfulness is the first of these factors of awakening. And we discussed it in some detail last week. It's the one that sets in motion all of the rest. It's both the foundation for, and it sets the wheel of the factors of enlightenment rolling. This is from the Anapanasati Sutta. These are the words of the Buddha. And how, bhikkhus, do the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body as body, or feelings as feelings, mind as mind, dhammas as dhammas, each of the foundations. On whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides these, fully aware, ardent, and mindful having put away covetousness and grief for the world, on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in him. On whatever occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established, on that occasion, the mindfulness enlightenment factor is aroused. And one develops it, and by development, it comes to fulfillment. Abiding thus mindful one investigates and examines that state with wisdom. One investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, a bhikkhu investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of states enlightenment factor is aroused and one develops it and by development it comes to fulfillment. So it's always good to just hear the Buddha's direct instructions on this by abiding mindfully, unremitting mindfulness. It's a good phrase to keep in mind. Unremitting mindfulness and then one abides contemplating, investigating one actually does something 
with what one is mindful of. And this is the second factor of awakening. In Pali, the term for this factor is tamavijaya, and it's translated in various ways. Sometimes it's translated as investigation of states, or investigation of truth, or discrimination of dhammas, or discerning the dhamma. And one of my favorite translations is truth discerning wisdom. So this is a particular faculty of mind. It's a particular activity of mind, this investigative factor, the factor of inquiry that discerns the truth. And so we might think of it, this particular awakening factor, as that which discerns or illuminates the truth by means of discriminating wisdom. One teacher summed it up very colloquially and aptly, saying, this factor of enlightenment is knowing what's what. And that's really the gist of what this particular activity of mind does. It's knowing what's what. So again, from the Buddha, when a bhikkhu dwelling mindful in this way discriminates inspects, applies investigation by means of wisdom, then the awakening factor of Dhamma discrimination is developed. So I hope you're getting an idea of this particular quality of mind and what it does. Discriminates, inspects, applies investigation by means of wisdom. So it's an active quality in our minds. And it's precisely this particular factor that awakens us from ignorance. There's a wonderful commentary on the Buddha's teachings called The Questions of King Melinda. Melinda was a king in ancient Bactria, which was a country in what is now Afghanistan, and it was a legacy from the empire of Alexander the Great. And that's why this country had a Greek king. And perhaps like other Greeks of that time, he was well-versed in philosophy and in debate. And it said, according to this commentary, that as a disputant, the king was hard to assail, hard to overcome. And the monks who lived in his capital, capital city of Sagala, complained to Nagasena, who was an arhant, an arhant monk. And they said, the king continually harasses the order of monks with questions and counter-questions, with arguments and counter-arguments. Please, Nagasena, go and subdue him. And so this is what Nagasena replied, Nagasena the Arhant, and I love his reply. Never mind just this one king. If all the kings of India would come to see me with their questions, I could well dispose of them, and they would give no more trouble after that. You may return to the capital without any fear whatever. He was confident in his understanding. So this book, The Question of King Melinda, Questions of King Melinda, is an account of the dialogues between the king and Nagasena. What's interesting is that many of the questions that the king raises are the very same questions that many of us have about the teachings. He really points to things that are not evident, or sometimes not so clear, and He's picking out those points, and Nagasena's replies are always tremendously illuminating. So in one of these dialogues, Melinda asks Nagasena, by how many of the factors of enlightenment 
by how many of these factors does one actually awaken? And Nagasena answers that it is by means of just one, namely the factor of investigating the Dhammas. So why then, asks King Melinda, does the Buddha speak of seven factors of awakening? A reasonable question. So Nagasena responds, does a sword placed in its sheath and not grasped in the hand succeed in cutting what needs to be cut? If the sword is staying in its sheath, is it able to cut anything? Certainly not, the king replied. In exactly the same way, your majesty, one cannot awaken by means of dhamma discrimination without the other six awakening factors. The other six factors are needed to unsheath and wield the sword of wisdom, but it's wisdom which cuts through delusion. And so we see the importance and the power of this particular factor of enlightenment. I think it's, it's crucial that we understand the activity of investigation, the activity of inquiry, the other factors support the sword, but we need that sort of wisdom to cut through delusion. Krishnamurti expressed this very well in more contemporary terms. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not your efforts to be free. What actually liberates the mind is truth discerning wisdom. So that's what we need to be cultivating in our practice. So what is it that truth discerning wisdom illuminates? What is the wisdom that is developed through our investigation? It's the wisdom of seeing the three universal characteristics of experience. And these are precisely the things that Myoshin has been talking about over the last weeks. And the Buddha, again, he, he expressed this so clearly. He said, in one who perceives impermanence, in one who perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self becomes firmly established. It's through seeing impermanence that the understanding of non-self becomes firmly established. And one who perceives non-self achieves the elimination of the conceit, I am, and attains Nibbana in this very life. So the direction is very clear with this faculty of investigation, of inquiry, we practice to realize for ourselves the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, the selflessness of everything that's arising. By understanding that it is wisdom that illuminates what is true. And that we cultivate wisdom through investigation of the Dhamma, through investigation of what's arising. We can begin to appreciate the very broad range of skillful means and methods that are in different Buddhist traditions for accomplishing this inquiry. There are many approaches to take. Sometimes investigation of the Dhamma is on the level of understanding karmic cause and effect and understanding the power of motivation. Sometimes it's on the level of emotional distress and knowing how to free ourselves from that kind of suffering. 
Sometimes investigation of the Dhamma is on the level of opening to and seeing the impermanent selfless nature of this mind-body process on a moment-to-moment level, where we really are refining our mindfulness and seeing moment-to-moment how the process is happening. And sometimes investigation of the Dhamma is a direct pointing to the awakened mind itself. It's pointing directly to liberation. So this evening, I'd like to explore some very specific applications of this factor of awakening and how we can practice and develop it not only in our formal meditation practice, but also in our daily lives. So last week we talked about how mindfulness calls to mind or remembers what is skillful and what is not skillful. Mindfulness remembers this, but it's investigation of the Dhamma which actually makes the discrimination. It's wisdom which shows us this is skillful, this is not skillful, this is wholesome, this is not wholesome. And we do this by looking deeply or investigating the motivation behind the actions, whether it's of the body, of speech, or of mind. Because it's the motivation which determines the skill or unskill of the action. And the Buddha helped us along with this. You know, there's... (laughs) Just tremendously appreciative of the clarity of the Buddha's teachings because it would be very hard to figure all this out by ourselves. You know, his understanding of the mind and how it's all working is so amazing. So he pointed out to us that all unwholesome actions, again, whether it's of the body or of our speech or in the mind, all unwholesome actions are rooted in either greed or hatred or delusion. And all wholesome actions are rooted in their opposites, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So our inquiry, our investigation, is to be open enough and honest enough and sometimes courageous enough to really look at our own motivations. What are the motivations that are arising in our minds? When we see them clearly, it's possible that that clarity of vision might put a dent in our self-image because we might see motivations, unwholesome motivations that we weren't even aware of. On the other hand, seeing clearly might actually inspire us when we see very powerfully wholesome, skillful motivations. So we need to be open enough to really see honestly, okay, what is it that's there? What are the qualities in the mind that are motivating us to act? We can look at them in terms of very specific actions. So the one that just came to mind as I was reflecting on this, it might be interesting to watch the mind carefully as we go through the lunch line and we see our favorite food. What is the mind doing? Are we as settled back in the moment as we are when we're doing walking meditation? You know, and there's no toppling forward, there's no wanting, there's no credit, we're just taking a step, being mindful of the step. Do we go through the lunch line, seeing our favorite food in the same way? Or... Is there kind of a slight anticipatory leaning forward 
you know, we're reaching for within anticipation and desire. It might be a very small thing, but still a movement of the mind. You know, an unwholesome motivation in mind. We might investigate motivation in a more general way of just looking at what is the basic aspiration of our practice? Why do we come here? You know, what's our motivation behind our meditation? And perhaps we connect deeply with that feeling or aspiration of bodhicitta, the wish to awaken for the benefit of all beings. You know, a tremendously wholesome motivation in the mind, one that can really inspire us. Sometimes there's a rapid interplay of wholesome and unwholesome. You know, in the same sitting or the same walking or the same mental drama, we can go back and forth between the two. So I had an example of this on my last retreat when I was sitting here at the Forest Refuge. I was reflecting on the awakened qualities of the Buddha, and particularly the aspect of the mind being free of desire, free of craving. And I was just kind of reflecting on that. And I started imagining what it would be like to abide in a mind that just didn't desire, didn't have craving. And I thought to myself, well, why not just do it? Because clearly, it's a happier state. You know, I was sure of that. It definitely feels better not to want than to be caught in wanting and craving. And the Buddha pointed to this very directly. He said, there are two kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of sense pleasures and the happiness of renunciation. And that the greater of them is the happiness of renunciation. So we all really know this from our experience. It's just that the knowing is often momentary. You know, but we, we know, we, we have had the experience of that freedom. So here I was inspiring myself with these reflections. And just abide in that space of ease and openness. And then in a moment, thought came to mind about my favorite meditation sweatshirt. It was just a sweatshirt that was so comfy, you know, and it was so nice to sit with. And it had this big hand warmer pouch. You know, and every morning at breakfast, I placed to put my hard-boiled eggs as I went through the line. And it was like the perfect meditation garment. And then I thought, if only I had this sweatshirt in different colors. Because then I could wear it every day and people wouldn't think that it never got washed. (laughs) And so my mind was just going on and on. So in a flash, I went from the most inspiring and motivating reflection on the mind free of desire and grasping and the ease of that. And then just in a moment, being seduced and momentarily believing that many colored sweatshirts would be the key to enlightenment. (laughs) So right in this scenario, which might be a little different in the details, but is probably not so different than what often arises in the mind of yogis. You know, we each get caught in our own little fantasy. But right in this situation, we can see and appreciate the working of the first two factors of enlightenment, the first two factors of awakening. At some point, 
the watchman named mindfulness became aware of all the sweatshirt thoughts. You know, I was in it, in it and then all, oh, thinking. And then the factor in, of investigation of dhammas came into play as I began to inquire and really look, okay, well, what was fueling these thoughts? Right? I, I started to investigate why were these thoughts, why did they keep coming? And of course, the most obvious answer, you know, and the first thing I saw was that it was simple desire for the nice, comfy feeling I had in wearing the sweatshirt. But I didn't stop there. I kept, I kept looking and I saw there was something else going on, another defilement that could be seen. And that was the defilement of conceit. And, you know, as you know, in Buddhism, the term conceit refers to just that sense of I was, I am, I will be, something, right? So in this case, even as I was on one retreat, my mind was already projecting myself into a future retreat, right? So there was I am, I will be. So just seeing, not with judgment, just truth-discerning wisdom, right? Discrimination of dhammas. That's the activity of this factor of awakening, to inquire how is it happening, what's actually there. At this point, I created a little cartoon character for the defilement of conceit, and I could just see kind of this little character in the mind, and I gave it a name. And the name I gave it was Wasm Will Be. Wasm Will Be. I was, I am, I will be. <laughs> so every time conceit came, Wasm Will Be is here again. And just seeing that and giving it that name, it was enough to kind of puncture it, you know, deflate it. Okay, so this is one area of investigation of dhammas, really seeing what is skillful, what is not, what is wholesome, what is not, and understanding how they're arising in the mind. Investigation of dhammas also comes into play when we find ourselves caught in major storms of afflictive emotions or in simply acting out some of our basic personality tendencies. We can investigate both. In these situations, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, he gave a very important reminder to us when we're lost in different kinds of emotional suffering or personality-level suffering, he said there are two kinds of suffering. One that leads to more suffering and one that leads to the end of suffering. So when we remember that, it can prompt the exercise of this factor of awakening. When we're in the midst of some suffering, do we simply want to be acting out patterns that lead to more suffering, or do we want to investigate and see what is the cause of it? Can this be the suffering that leads to the end of suffering? So in times of emotional turbulence, First, we can investigate what it is that is actually arising. What is the nature of the emotion itself? And then we can inquire how we're relating to it. Are we claiming it to be I or mine? Sometimes the act of simple recognition, of clear recognition, is enough to come to a place of acceptance and letting go. So instead of being tossed about in a storm of 
undifferentiated emotion where we don't quite know what's going on and we're just in a state of turbulence, we can begin to discern, we can practice investigating, what is this? Is this fear? Is it sadness? Is it unhappiness? Is it anger? Is it rage? Is it loneliness? Is it boredom? The clarity of discernment can be a tremendous help in the process of acceptance because it allows us to become aligned with what is actually there. If we're misperceiving it or we're confused about what's present, very difficult to accept it because we're not fully aligned with it. We don't know exactly what it is. With quickly passing emotions, it doesn't matter. We don't have to bring this investigation to every emotion that comes. But when we're caught, when we're stuck, when we're suffering, then to look carefully, to discern clearly, can be a tremendous help. Sometimes we can investigate further and in another way. With the sword of discerning wisdom, we can cut through the Gordian knot of self. I don't know if you remember from mythology about the Gordian knot. This is also from the time of Alexander the Great. On his march through Asia, he came to this kingdom of Gordos, and the king had created in some way this very complex knot. And the tradition had it that anybody who could untie the knot would then go on to conquer much of Asia. So many people came, you know, and tried to untie it, untangle it, and no one could. And then Alexander the Great comes marching through and... You know, he comes to Gordos and the, the knot. And he's told of the prophecy. And he simply takes his sword and slices it through. That can be our sword of wisdom in slicing through, cutting through the very notion of self. I just want to share with you one example of this in my own uh, practice in life. And it was very difficult situation years ago this is 15 or 20 years ago had a situation where a very close friend did something that I felt as a huge betrayal of my trust and I don't know whether you've had that experience of the feeling of betrayal but it is a tremendously painful emotion you know, it was just, it just felt like a knife in my heart. And I was going through a lot of emotional and mental machinations in dealing with it, you know, and trying to be with it. From my first plotting of revenge <laughs> to saying, no, I really have to work on this in myself. And finally, after being with it for quite a while, I had a realization that proved to be very liberating. Even as I was experiencing this feeling of kind of the knife in my heart, I realized for that knife to hurt, it needed a place to land. And if there was no self for it to land on, it wasn't a problem. And understanding the situation in that way, it was like the relief of this huge emotional burden. Through coming to that understanding of the selfless nature of the whole process. So sometimes investigation of the Dhamma right in the middle of intense emotional difficulty, if we really 
are examining carefully, you know, and with interest, okay, what is the cause of suffering here? It was not what the other person did, even though it was not a very skillful act. The real suffering was because there was a self to receive it. And in the dissipation of that, the mind and heart again came to a place of ease. So all of this is investigation of the Dhamma. We actually are using our practice to liberate ourselves. The same factor of awakening also reveals a lot about our basic personality structures. Now, you may be familiar with you know, the personality types, especially as they're described in The Path of Purification, which is one of the great commentaries on the Buddhist teachings. You know, and people are described with the template of you know, either greedy types or aversive types or deluded types. And there's quite detailed descriptions of how each of these types of personality acts and relates in the world. Basically, the greedy or desirous type are those who just go through life seeing what they want, seeing what they like. You know, and that's, oh, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice, I like that. And that's their basic take on the world. The aversive types habitually see what's wrong with their world and with everybody in their world. You know, and so that personality type is just seeing the negative side of things. That isn't right, that isn't right. And the deluded types don't notice much of anything. They're just kind of going around in a cloud of delusion. Of course, and this is important, each of these types has a positive, enlightened side as well. And so we want to not get too dismayed. The greed and desire, in its more enlightened aspect, gets transformed into faith and devotion. Aversion can be transformed into a discriminating intelligence, a very keen intelligence. And delusion, in its more positive aspect, is transformed into a profound equanimity. The reason I like this template, and it's, it's kind of fun to actually look in the books and see all the ways different types manifest, because it's pretty easy to recognize ourselves what I like about it is just a, a schema, is that it helps us to see it all impersonally. We see that it's just the working, the impersonal working of a particular personality pattern, rather than as being some reified expression of self. So rather than taking these patterns to be, yeah, that's who I am, that's me, we see, oh, it's just that pattern playing itself out. And when we see it in that way, then we can train ourselves in practicing the positive aspects of them. It all becomes very malleable, very workable. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who many of you probably know as a great Buddhist scholar and translator, uh, and his translations are really wonderful, uh, wonderful translations of the Buddhist teachings. He wrote of another template of personality structure, which I found uh, very helpful, particularly in the context of this factor of enlightenment investigation of dhammas. And he used the five aggregates as a way of distinguishing our habitual tendencies. So I'll just read through kind of his analysis of this. He suggested that those who were most identified with the first aggregate of form, 
you know, the material elements, are those whose personality are very physically minded people, strongly attached to the body and physical activity. So there's a strong identification with that first aggregate. Those who are most identified with the second aggregate of feelings are the hedonists, people who are most attracted to and attached to pleasure. Because that's the feeling, uh, the feeling aggregate. People identified with perception are those for whom aesthetic concerns are very predominant. And it's when I read that, that's what jumped out at me as a moment of self-recognition. Because when we were building and designing the forest refuge, I mean, there were many times when my mind, one might say, became a bit obsessive (laughs) about the perfect design and what needed to be done. But at the time, I really didn't understand it as related to this aggregate of perception and a possible identification with it. Now, I thought I was just seeing things clearly. <laughs> so when I read this, it was, it was very illuminating at a particular personality trait of mine. If we're identified with the fourth aggregate, you know, of intentions and mental formations, then we might be the kind of people who give more importance to emotions. Or if volition particularly is predominant, then we might be the people who are very action-oriented and be identified with, well, we're the one who can get things done. Because we're so identified with that volition or intention. And those who are most identified with consciousness often see themselves primarily as thinkers. Well, I'm the one thinking. I'm the subject of all these thoughts. So, of course, it's important to remember that any template is a conceptual overlay on experience. So we don't want to take these to be kind of some statements of absolute truth. But if we use this awakening factor of investigation of the Dhamma, in this way, we can begin to see the conditioned nature of those traits that we most take to be ourselves. You know, it's a place often where the sense of self coalesces and congeals in our basic personality traits. So if we investigate with any of these templates, we really begin to see their impersonal, impermanent nature. So truth discerning wisdom, it discriminates between what is skillful and what is not skillful. It can free us from the stories of afflictive emotions. And it reveals the non-personal nature of our basic personality patterns. And they become less of an unconscious prison. And these very same patterns can then become a playground of transformation. We start to play with them and transform them. So with strong mindfulness as the foundation, this enlightenment factor of investigation of dhammas also explores the basic nature of this mind and body. And here we're leaving the level of content and beginning to look directly at the momentary process. There's one important understanding in the practice that's called purification of view. And here, this enlightenment factor of truth discerning wisdom 
sees that what we're taking to be self is simply the momentary paired progression of knowing an object. And so in Pali, this insight is called insight into nama rupa, or mental physical phenomena. We create many stories about experience. We create whole worlds in our mental projections. But the whole big story of self, when we investigate carefully, comes down to moments of knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, knowing a taste, knowing a sensation, knowing a mind object. That's all that's going on. But out of that, we create a whole big superstructure, a whole big story of self. An investigation of dhammas can take it a step further. Not only do we see that our experience is actually just this momentary paired progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, but we begin to discern clearly the difference between the knowing and the object. These are two different processes happening simultaneously. They can't be separated, but they can be distinguished. So just as an example of what that means, you know, if I hold this up, you see both color and form, right? Color and form are two different things, but they're inseparable. You see color in a form, and the form as a certain color. So that's just an example of how things can be inseparable, but distinguishable. In the same way, knowing and its object, they're inseparable, but distinguishable. So just as an example of how we might learn to discern the difference. And all of this is in the service of a deeper realization of anatta, of selflessness. The the example is a little odd, but I hope it will serve the point. So just imagine a corpse, and we're pumping air into the lungs of the corpse. So as we're pumping air in, there's a rising and falling movement, right, Of, of the chest and the chest cavity in the lungs. So the rising, falling movement is there, but presumably the corpse doesn't know that there's anything going on. Whereas when we breathe and there's a rising, falling movement, not only is there the same physical movement as with the corpse, but there's something else as well. What is that something else? The something else is consciousness is awareness. Do you get the point? (laughs) So just as an experiment, sometimes sit and imagine yourself as a corpse. No, let's forget that one. (laughs) We can actually cultivate this particular investigation of the Dharma this discernment of mind and materiality, of mind and object, at any of the sense doors. Now we can do with hearing. The sound is just physical elements. The knowing of it is mind. A smell, a taste, a sensation. The sensation is just a physical element. The knowing of it is mind. Through this discernment, we begin to see that neither the object nor the the knowing is self, is I. There's no subject there. You know, I've spoken to many of you about just changing the linguistic framework of our experience and putting it in the passive voice 
You know, so a sensation being known, a thought being known, a sound being known. And just that linguistic change takes the subject out of the picture. There's no subject in that. There's just different objects being known. The great philosopher Wittgenstein, he expressed this very point. He said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. Language has a huge impact on how we perceive things. And it's largely due to language that we keep repeating the mistake of perceiving things through the lens of self. Another writer has written many great books, Wei Wu Wei. He said, we do not possess an ego. We are possessed by the idea of one. It's just our mental creation. So investigation of Dhamma, this inquiring factor of mind, it's this activity of the mind that's really looking deeply and discerning the very nature of this mind-body process moment to moment. That's what reveals this. So it doesn't become just an abstract philosophic discussion. But we really start experiencing things in that way. As Buddhism spread throughout Asia and through different cultures, there were many different skillful means and methods that were used in the cultivation of this factor of enlightenment. Now, in India, the Indian culture was very uh, analytic. And so a lot of the teachings, as you know, in the Theravada tradition, are very detailed analysis and a deconstruction of the sense of self. In many of the other cultures that were not so analytic, there were different methods used to investigate the truth, to investigate the Dhamma, and to come to this realization of selflessness. In Zen, there's a teaching called the Doctrine of No Mind. And in this teaching, there's a direct pointing to the empty, selfless nature of awareness. And many of the koans in Zen practice are really a means of leading to this realization. So there's one, it's kind of a koan or a dialogue, which is this direct pointing. And when I was on retreat, I just happened to come across it, you know, in doing a little reading. And it, it had such impact because right in the middle of the retreat, it's like it became very alive. So I thought to share it with you because it really has the power to liberate. And it's a famous dialogue between Bodhidharma, who is said to have brought Buddhism from India to China, and Hueka. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but he's the person who became the successor to Bodhidharma. But as legend goes, Bodhidharma was sitting in this cave for seven years, facing a wall, contemplating the ultimate. And Hueka came, and he was in a state of tremendous distress, and he kept imploring Bodhidharma to give him the teachings. And it said Bodhidharma just sat in the ultimate. So after many pleadings, finally, and again, this is the legend, Waka cut off his arm and kind of sent it in as a demonstration of his sincerity. So Bodhidharma was moved by that (laughs) and kind of came out and had a little dialogue. So this, this is the dialogue. So Hueka says to Bodhidharma, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. Just teach me the essence of the awakened mind. And Bodhidharma says, 
the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. So Heka says, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. Bodhidharma says, present me your mind and I will pacify it. Weka, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. Bodhidharma, there, I've pacified it. This is a very profound teaching. Right? And, and it's, it's, it's a very good practice of investigation of dhammas. I've looked for my mind and I can't find it. Right? To really look into the nature of awareness itself. To look and see. Tulku Urgin, who's a Dzogchen master, he, he expressed it another way. He said, when you look for your mind, there's nothing to find. And the not finding is the finding. Right? When we look, there's nothing to find, and that's the finding. It's already pacified when we understand this empty, selfless nature of the mind. And how do we understand it? By a direct looking at it. So that's another way of practicing this factor of awakening. So sometimes in my practice, and often just in walking about, I'll remind myself just the phrase, already pacified. You know, this empty, open nature of mind. It's already pacified. So I'll just, I'll just use those couple of words, you know, already pacified. And I often feel, just in that moment of remembrance, a kind of settling back from, I don't know, a subtle wanting or leaning forward or anticipating of experience that I didn't even know was there till I reminded myself, oh, already pacified. Already empty, already selfless. So we can use all of these different teachings, all of these ways of cultivating this factor of enlightenment, this truth-discerning wisdom. Because it's this wisdom, in whatever way we cultivate it, in all the ways, you know, in different situations and at different times, this is what awakens us. I'll just close with a kind of a, a very moving little statement. It says, the light of a single candle can illuminate the darkness of 10,000 years. Now, it doesn't matter how long we've been lost in confusion, in a thought, in an afflictive emotion. The light of a single candle, a single moment, of truth-discerning wisdom dispels the darkness. So this is our practice. This, this is what we're doing. And all the other factors of enlightenment are in the service of wielding this sword of wisdom. So let's sit for a couple of minutes.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. 